You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We have a most interesting guest this morning, uh, a fellow by the name of T.J. Waters, who's now a senior consultant for the U.S. Special Operations Command headquarters. Interestingly, his background included service in CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, an experience which he wrote a book about called Class 11. To give any of you who are interested in looking at the agency very good insight into the early training and experience that he had. But our point today is very different. Uh, We're bringing him here because he also did a a book called Prior to the Snap, How the NFL's Hyperperformance Strategy Safeguards the World's Most Successful Team Sport. And in doing that book, he drew upon his experience as a strategist and a consultant for the Special Operations Command, as I mentioned, and in private business. And to interview him, we have brought in Dan Trito, uh, Dan Trito uh, works closely with our curator here in the museum, keeping the museum up to par. And when he heard that T.J. Waters was coming in and he knew the book, he said, that would be a really neat interview. I wish I could do that one. We said, okay, Dan, you're going to do it. So today you'll meet two people, T.J. Waters, our guest, and Dan Trito from here at the museum. Dan? Welcome, Mr. Waters. So yeah, I was very interested in, uh, in the book prior to the snap. I'm very excited to read it. And so my question, uh, the first question is just, how did you come to be interested in the intersection of, of football and intelligence? Well, like a lot of people, I had no idea that the NFL really engaged in the intel operations uh, from week to week during the season. Uh, one of my next door neighbors was a football player. And when he knew what I did for a living, I was talking about some business intelligence work that I was doing and, and was planning on writing about. He said, well, you should come and see what we do every week in the NFL. And I thought, what do you do? You, you play football. You know, I had the same dumb jock mentality that a lot of people did and was absolutely floored by what I found. Um, their intelligence gathering and analysis operation is at least as good as anything I've seen in government uh, and perhaps better in many ways. And so w- what are the NFL rules regarding spying? I mean, what, what are the limitations? And The collection you know. is what's really managed by the NFL. And it's very strict. Um, you, you saw that you mentioned earlier the thing with the Patriots uh, and their sideline videotaping that is against the rules. It's very, uh, very spelled out what they can do from a collection standpoint. What really makes each team successful is the analysis of the information that's collected. Uh, they're not allowed to use a computer during an actual game. They're not allowed to use videotape during a game. 
But prior to that, prior to the snap, uh, the analysis that goes into what they give to each player and each coach during the week is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, game film is sliced and diced about a dozen different ways. Each player gets a uh, one-and-a-half-inch thick three-ring three binder uh, with a brief for the specifics of who they're going to be squaring off against on Sunday. So that's 55 custom-written products for each, you know, for each of the players. Well, then you've got 20 coaches that also get the same sort of thing custom-written for them. So the infrastructure to be able to do that on a weekly basis for 17 weeks is just amazing. Sounds like a military engagement. And there are certainly, you know, in your book, you, you talk about those comparisons. Um, and I, I think it's just funny to note the, the lexicon um, that, that is shared. I mean, there's a blitz, and you, you, um, you sack the quarterback, and... Uh, the, they're um, called the gridiron warriors for that reason. Gridiron right. warriors, exactly. Very yeah. interesting. How does intelligence inform decision making on the field? Actually, when 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 the players are playing, I mean, and you know, the quarterbacks calling the play. Well, it's, it's interesting. Again, comparing it to the military and and some of the civilian agencies that I've worked with, uh, they do a lot of implicit communication. So we were talking earlier uh, before we went on on mic here. Uh, for an average forty hour work week uh, of an NFL player, eighteen hours of that is spent in meetings. So they have a huge uh, meeting room with the nice big plush chairs that can accommodate a guy that's 330 pounds and, you know, six feet, eight inches tall. Um, but they meet for 18 hours during that week as a team. Then they break up into offense versus defense and special teams. Then from there they'll break down. The quarterback's coach will take the three quarterbacks into a separate room, and they're going through game film. They're going through special um, uh, 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 scouting reports. Uh, breaking everything down so that on Sunday there's not really a need for a lot of sideline communications. You're trying to minimize that to the fullest extent possible because there simply isn't time. We're used to seeing a 60-minute football game, but the Wall Street Journal did an analysis last year where they actually figured out how much playing time there is in that 60 minutes, and it's less than 12. <laughs> so if you think about how much time they have available on the field to communicate information, it's virtually a few seconds. Right, right. And information's everything, obviously. Um, and so Spygate, the, you know, what happened with Belichick, um, Belichick's Patriots in 2007, what actually happened? Could you tell us what, uh, what transpired there? They had a, a gentleman videotaping on the sidelines, on the opposing team sidelines, which is against the, the NFL rules. Again, the collection is very stringently uh, curtailed as far as what you can and cannot do. From an analysis standpoint, anything goes during the week. You can analyze it any way you see fit. And when you see a lot of personnel changes going on during the season, a lot of that is some of the uh, specialists in analysis that are moving from one team to the next for whatever reason. Let me just ask you one question. Uh, you have an intelligence background, and you are a consultant now. Correct. And much of intelligence and what the public knows a great deal about is collecting intelligence. Right. And you're putting a tremendous emphasis on analysis, slicing, dicing, looking at the videos and so forth. As you know, there's another part of intelligence, and that's covert action, right. which is being proactive and trying to influence events uh, using a variety of often underhanded methods, I suppose. That's the best way to put it. But we see so much in public sports by way of trash talk and so, I mean, whether it's boxing or football and so forth. And and part of it is, to what extent is that contrived? To what, to what extent is that covert action? I suspect a great deal. In the book itself, you'll see a, a cartoon that a, a gentleman did in New York of Tom Brady wearing a cast. And if you remember two years ago yeah. when he first started uh, seeing who is now his wife, Giselle, uh, he was wearing a cast. Well, everybody knew that that was a denial and deception operation, and they actually <laughs> made a cartoon, which uh, the, the the guy who, who drew it gave me permission to put it in the book, um, of him in a wheelchair looking at the, the viewer saying anything to throw off the, the giants, you know. And uh, 
there's a lot of that that goes on. Uh, we even see it in the college game. And what's interesting is how much the college and pros move stuff back and forth. So you see not only coaches that move from team to team across that, that juncture, but you also, also see a lot of techniques. And you mentioned denial and deception and you know, covert action. Um, one of the best coaches I've seen recently on the collegiate side is Chip Kelly at Oregon. Uh, if you remember during the season, the big placards they were holding up that are split into uh, quads, a big four square thing, and you'll have various pictures in each of the quads. There'll be a picture of Sir Isaac Newton, and, and there'll be an apple and a plus sign and some other nondescript thing that they're holding up on the sidelines. And it drove the competing coaches and players crazy trying to figure out what that was. And then it started showing up on the news as well. The sportscasters are trying to figure out, what the hell is Chip <laughs> Kelly doing with that? And it did exactly what he wanted. It made them hesitate. It made them slow down their analysis to a point where his hurry-up offense could react to changing conditions much faster than his competition, and they were undefeated all the way to the BCS championship. Well, back to the Tom Brady thing, and that kind of um, misdirection in, in football or in any sports, I mean, do you think it's cheating? I mean, there's a gray area there. Or is it just that's the way the game is played? I think and that's, that's the way the game is you know, played. Okay. Uh, and business does the same thing. You know, everybody complains that Apple doesn't put out a whole lot of information about their new product development. Why would they let their competition know about it ahead of time if they don't have to? Right. And they don't have to. So <laughs> everybody's you know, breathlessly waiting on the next new development. The NFL is doing the same thing. Their, their innovative spirit week to week is absolutely phenomenal during the week because whatever one team develops, the rest are going to be copying within two weeks. Well, in, in terms of uh, coaching in the NFL, I mean, I find it interesting. Again, I'm, I'm going back to the military comparison. Um, I mean, essentially, a coach is a, is like a general, and yes. in that they are effective insofar as as they make their players believe in them and in and and I don't know their strategies and stuff. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? I mean, how does a coach, how does how do they do it? How do they actually will their players to you know behave in a certain way and to believe in their strategies? And that is the only word to use is you've got to make them believe. Um, down in Tampa right now, the Buccaneer head coach is Raheem Morris. He's the youngest coach in the NFL. So you think about that for a minute. Most of his players are older than he is. They make more money than he does, and yet he's the one in charge. They have to believe that this younger guy that makes less money than they do as a superstar player can actually take them where they want to go, and he's able to do that. His first year went very badly, but he went from being a quality control coach to being an offensive coordinator to being a head coach within 48 hours. That's quite a leap from being the guy who writes the Intel product to being the guy who's working on the how-to operational side to then being the strategic puppet master. Uh, that's quite a bit to absorb. And he went through, what, three defensive coordinators, two off uh, three quarterbacks, two offensive coordinators, and one defensive coordinator in his rookie season as a head coach. This past season, they had 10 wins over the season. Much better, uh, I mean, much better numbers. And the Buccaneers have retained him for another two years. And so um, in your book, you talk about... Uh... Colonel John Boyd, who's not someone that I was familiar with, you know, prior to reading the book, um, he's a um, uh, he's, he's a pilot, or he was a pilot, but a, right. a pilot instructor, right? And so his strategies, you talk about and compare them to, you know, to, well, to, to football strategy. So yeah. how, how did how, you know? Could you talk about that a little bit? How Colonel Boyd work? is known as Forty Second Boyd. He was a, a fighter pilot's fighter pilot, uh, undefeated in air-to-air -air combat. He designed many of the uh, the strategies used by combat pilots today. But from an, uh, a disadvantaged position, he could overcome and defeat any pilot that he went up against in less than 40 seconds. Now, that's a lot of you know, brave talk, especially even among pilots who are typically type A personalities to begin with. And the guy was undefeated all the way uh, through his career until he retired. When he retired, he came back and helped design the new F-16s and new F-18s that we're flying right now based on some of the ideas he had about how combat should be done. What his real specialty was is called the OODA loop. Uh, and you're probably familiar with that. 
Uh, it is a way of getting inside your opponent's decision making so that you can react faster than they can to changing conditions. And when we talk about combat, it's changing conditions. Uh, one of the old jokes in the military is that no military plan ever survives first contact with the enemy. Football is no different. And when football coaches apply some of his methodologies to the discipline of, of playing a game, if they can get inside that decision-making cycle of their competitor, they typically come out ahead. I wonder, since you, you've come from a field in which you do strategy consulting, management consulting, and so forth, right. that term OODA loop I have heard, uh, I've heard also applied to management matters. Yes. I wonder if you could just expand a bit on that for our listeners, Certainly. what it means and how you understand it works. Okay. Uh, it's, OODA is uh, observe, orient, decide, and act. Four quick steps. And again, you're trying to get inside your opponent's ability to react to changing conditions. So again, denial and deception that you mentioned earlier uh, comes into play there. If I can slow down how you're going to make decisions, if I can put something out there that's going to confuse you or confuse your staff, your staff is going to give you bad information. Well, that gives me more time to operate. Uh, and again, we see a lot of companies doing this nowadays. Uh, when High Performance, uh, the, the business book came out, there was a lot of questions about that. Well, how would a publicly traded company put out disinformation that wouldn't run afoul of the SEC? There are ways of doing it. Um, most of them didn't want to go into a lot of gory detail with that with me for the obvious reasons. Uh, but you can see how some companies are very good at delaying certain pieces of information. They may not misdirect you, but they'll simply delay you getting it, which is also a legitimate, uh, a legitimate tactic. Um, and those that do that typically have better turnaround times, faster decision-making, and their, their leaders are not having to give explicit guidance to their staff. The, the staff know what the boss wants. They don't have to go in and check, hey, sir, we need this question answered. We need this decision made. They know how to act on the boss's will and the boss's uh, strategy because they've had that level of communication with them for days, weeks, months, whatever it is. They can act without needing to get permission because they know what the boss wants. And again, a football team does that very well because that's part of the planning that they go through during that week. So they don't need to run to the sideline and ask a coach, gee, what do you want us to do with this next series? They know what he wants done because they've been talking about it for the prior week. Businesses that do that you know, tend to have products out there that are better, faster, cheaper, whatever the metric is. Well, and I was wondering too, I mean, what are some of the, the ways, the mechanisms um, that the, the NFL um, tries to prohibit spying? I mean, we talked about... Uh, how um, they're, they're, well, there's an offensive uh, helmet with a, um, a microphone and a way to communicate right. with coaches and defensive now. And, and so how does the NFL, you know, make sure that, that, that communications are not, um, you know, interfered with? Um, well, if you know uh, during a game, you'll see two helmets that have a little green dot on the back of them. The NFL uh, manages those helmets. So there's one for the offense, one for the defense, and they'll have two helmets backed up that are under lock and key with an NFL uh, official on the sidelines making sure that those are not monkeyed with. They'll test them before the game starts, and if there's a problem with them, they'll switch them out during the game. Uh, it's 256-bit encryption, so it's you know, pretty solid. It can be right. broken, but it's not easy, and it's not fast, and they do tend to monitor it. Uh, there's, but the, the communication going on during a game itself is just phenomenal. Uh, there's the guys up in the press box that are talking to the coaching staff on the sidelines. You've got the coaches talking to the guys on the field by radio. You've also got a lot of hand signals going on from the sidelines to the field. And then you've got the quarterback trying to give audibles and give uh, instructions to the offensive line. And now on the, the defense side, since they're wearing a radio now as well, the defense captain is also giving instructions on the defensive side all the way up until the last 15 seconds when the radios are cut off and the guys actually have to go up to the line, square off, and the play runs. But it is an enormous amount of information moving back and forth right up until the last second. 
because everybody's trying to make a last-minute adjustment, and that's what you see going on in the field. And when the quarterback sees, okay, here's how everybody's taking their stance, he'll do a last-minute audible, and then the play starts. And you were we were talking earlier about how you know the, the, the massive amount of communication that goes on. I mean, it's it's pretty hard to process. So it there, is. there are psych tests given you know to, to pro players to to sort of you know test that they're capable of of you know, dealing they, with this they go know. through the same psychological exam that uh, special operators go through right, and people have asked me well you know i can't figure out why my player my favorite player went so low in the draft as opposed to some other guy that you know quote is not as good well that other guy might not be as good at throwing or running as fast or whatnot but the psych test reveals he can communicate much faster so this is important not just for a quarterback who has to take the information from a coach on the radio and then communicate it to the offensive line, but also for the offensive line players and on the defense as well, to take that information, interpret it very quickly because you only have a few seconds, especially in the context of what you spent the past week studying on game film and talking to your coaches about and practicing on the field and applying it with like three seconds to go before the snap. It is just a, a really unusual way of determining who can communicate well and who cannot. And that really affects where players go in the draft, just as it affects who gets picked up for a special operations uh, team and who does not. Mm. They may be you know, the best shooter, but if they can't communicate effectively, then you're going to get somebody zapped. And on the, on the football field, you're going to get somebody tackled when you want to have a better play. So what about um, intelligence um, with other sports? I mean, we talked earlier about baseball, but I'm wondering about, I mean, is it, is it as prevalent as football in, in you know, soccer or I don't even know what, but uh, yeah, do you have not, any experience with that? Not that I've seen, no. I think the reason football is as successful as it is, and it's the most successful team sport in the world, is because of the intelligence being so integrated into their strategy every week. You know, you take the best team and the worst team, you cannot predict with any accuracy who's going to win that game and by how much because both teams have been able to prepare so equally to combat each other. Uh, you may have much better players, but if mine are sneakier or faster and I know how to apply that appropriately, I can still beat you. And it's just fascinating to see what some of these guys come up with to do that very thing. And that's why I think, uh, and we just had the playoffs this past weekend, you know, could anybody have predicted who would win those? Not that I saw. And, you know, the, the commentary that's been coming out today just in the papers here locally and I'm sure nationally, you know, everybody's kind of scratching their head. Hey, how do, how do we get to this point? Nobody thought it was going to be these two guys going to the Super Bowl. Well, and so, you know, are you going to make your pick? Who do you think is going to win? I'm going to lean towards the Steelers. <laughs> I'm going to lean towards the Steelers. Yeah, me too. I like the Steelers. You know, I'm curious. One of the things that, uh, as you well know, uh, intelligence services have always valued in the past is documentation. If you can steal the documents, even, I mean, WikiLeaks is a form of that because it's leaking what was in real documents produced by real people uh, dealing in diplomacy and intelligence. Um, So I'm asking about sort of not so much the overt collection, watching watching the... uh, uh, plays, the videotape plays and so forth, rerunning those, slicing and dicing them. Has there been much evidence of sort of attempts at hacking? Uh, You mentioned the two helmets, for example, use an encryption um, or even trying to get a hold of playbooks. And of course, players are moving around all the time between different teams. Now, I don't know how much that would affect it because presumably every year they're trying to, to change to a degree, but that is sort of documentary intelligence so absolutely could you comment on that we talked about this actually earlier a playbook for an average team is around 600 pages that they have to memorize during the preseason during the actual uh 17 week season of playing you know competing teams you get uh, as i said earlier an inch and a half thick binder of a couple of hundred pages on your competitor your competitor you're going to be squaring off against on sunday not only them as an individual but how their role fits into the 
the strategy of the opposing team. So you're going to see what the analysis is of those opposing players' strategies and the series that they'll be running against you. So that, again, if you see a guy move left when you're expecting him to go right, you know something's up. You know that it's not going to be the play that you're expecting. You need to stop what your original plan was, and everybody needs to stop, wait a beat or two, and see what develops so that you can counter whatever it is they're trying to throw at you. But again, all that documentation is just reams and reams and reams of paper. Um, they used to do all the game film on video VHS, and they had you know boxes of VHS tapes that they would push back and forth. Now it's all on digital, and you'll see players on the bus as they're coming and going to uh, to the games. So they're looking at iPads and iPods and phones and some of the droids now that run video. They're looking at the game film that has been specifically cut for them as they're going to and from the games because in addition to all the meetings with other players and their coaches, they still have their own individual study that they have to do at home. You know, I think many fans, uh, both in this country and overseas, a lot of people overseas watch football, oh, yes. um, would have no concept of the sort of intellectual level of, of, of this business of trying, for the, of the individual players having to assimilate so much information, process it, yeah. attend meetings. People don't look at football and players and say, Gee, they attend meetings. You know, they think, I don't want an opposite job. I'd have to go to meetings all the time. Right. Sounds like exactly. these guys are going to meetings a lot. And, exactly. and processing, you know, the, the impression of a football player is not a person who spends a lot of time right. thinking, the talking, working. You are changing that impression. I was stunned by it. I, I, I had the same dumb jock stereotype in my head that everybody else did as well and was just stunned by how much material they have to actually go through week to week. Uh, they spend less than about six hours a week actually on the field practicing. 18 hours of that week is spent in meetings of various types. And they'll spend a few hours of working out, they'll go to therapy, et cetera, et cetera. But the overwhelming bulk of it is in meetings. Well, TJ, it's, it's been absolutely fascinating having you in. I think we're going to get feedback from, from people, just as you got on, on your book, uh, wanting to have you in a game. But we can't have you in for, for every ball game. But, you know, I think we're going to get you back. So let me I'd say again, Thank you. this is TJ Waters. And uh, his book, is cla his uh, first book, actually, was Class 11, which was about his experience in CIA as an operations officer. And uh, later he has written this book, Prior to the Snap, Intelligence and Strategy in the NFL. It's been an absolutely fascinating interview. And, Dan, thank you so much for coming in and, and lending your expertise to the, uh, to the questions. Thank, thank you, you both. both for having me. I enjoyed it. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.